Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle, it's John Lamoureux. Alright, this week we get to hear from a legend. To my ears, one of the greatest songwriters of all time, and one half of one of the greatest songwriting duos of all time, it is Squeeze's Glenn Tilbrook. I think as most people probably know, Squeeze are back out on tour right now. Uh, some shows they're opening up for uh, Hall & Oates, some are just them. I'm planning on seeing them next week. I'm excited about it. So, and if you have not seen them yet, go do it. They are so, so good. I think everyone knows that, I mean, Squeeze are one of the greatest pop bands of all time. You know, those songs are timeless. I'm such a huge fan. I'll be honest, this this conversation was for me. I uh, <laughs> I asked about some, some of the more obscure songs. I asked about some of his solo work. Uh, we kick it off right here. This is a song called This Is Where You Ain't off of his first solo album, The Incomplete Glenn Tilbrook. There's a story about this song that is near the beginning of this conversation, which is why we're kicking it off with this. But uh, anyway, I think we go in some deeper roads that he doesn't go down all the time. Hopefully not anyway. I didn't ask about all like the huge songs, uh, some of them, but I went down some other roads. Also, this was unfortunately one of those times when my microphone wasn't turned on and I didn't know that. You can still obviously hear me. It's just that it's being recorded. The laptop is picking me up, not the microphone. But anyway, so this guy's a legend. He's one of my all-time favorites. I love him so much. I love Squeeze and everything they do. And uh, I am so honored that he talked with me. He called me from... now. He lives in the UK, obviously, but he was about to kick off the tour, so he was staying at a friend's house in Long Island, New York. Glenn, I gotta tell you, the uh, the hair on the back of my neck is standing up because I love you so much. And, oh, that's uh, so sweet. <laughs> I uh, this is gonna be be one of the nerdier interviews, maybe that you've done. I ha I mean, I so I I want to tell you about the time I saw you in concert. It was in the early two thousands. And uh, it was at a bar in Sacramento, California, and um, there were maybe 15 people there. And I, uh, the stage is only about maybe six inches off the ground. I'm six foot eight, and I'm standing right in front of you at about 10 o'clock. And uh, <laughs> so, and it's it was one of the best concert experiences I've ever had because just you and your guitar. You're you're on fire. You play every song anyone ever you know requests. I'd never noticed what an amazing guitar shredder you were, which I'm going to ask you more about. <laughs> but um, everyone's throwing you know requests out, and it's usually black coffee in bed or up the junction or whatever. And my very favorite Glenn Tilbrook composition is "This Is Where You Ain't," and oh, I said that. And you played it right away, just for me. <laughs> and, uh, Brilliant. Oh, that's lovely. I'm, I'm glad that happened. Yes, me too. Now, I have, some I have a question about that song. Number one, I know the reason for you writing it is a sad one, if you don't mind retelling a little bit of that. Secondly, here's what's funny about that song. Uh, I like the version that's on the incomplete Glenn Tilbrook. And I even like the version that's on the acoustic bonus disc of that album. But my favorite version is anytime you just play it live, 
just you and an acoustic guitar and it's uploaded to YouTube somewhere. That is when that song is at its most powerful. Sitting alone with time to reflect on all that's come to pass. So I just vomited a bunch of nerdy stuff on you. Uh, please tell me about where that song came from and all the different variations. Well, I'll probably get the second half of the question, but definitely the first half is when my elder boys, when I split up with their mum, and uh, she took them from uh, London to live in Australia. You know, it was a it was a terrible time. Um, it was a terrible time to get used to that for them and for me. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was really about the thing of of uh, being at my house and feeling that they're just not here anymore. This is where you ain't. That, uh, that's. Uh, I wrote that actually when they'd just gone back to Australia. And uh, so uh, I went to Greece and actually pretty much on arrival sat down and wrote that. And it really, I think it was the first song I wrote by myself that really expressed something that was important to me. I was just finding my way as far as writing lyrics because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'd only split up with uh, Chris uh, three years um before that record came out, two years before I wrote it, I, I wouldn't say. So it was a, it was a good milestone professionally for me to reach that, and it was a really great way of expressing, of turning something that was horrible into something more positive, and also something that would remind me of of that time, as bittersweet as it was, more bitter than sweet, actually. I love it so much. And again, but why did it go through so many permutations? And Because it is most powerful to me when it's just you and an acoustic guitar. I wondered if the production on your debut album, solo album, I don't know if let it down is the right way, but it almost seems like you've, you, maybe you agree with me that in the, you and an acoustic guitar performing that song is the best version of it. Why has it gone through so many permutations? Uh, because uh, the the version on the record uh, on the album is how I heard it being. You know, mm. um, um, you know that's a I took a long time over that first uh, solo record, so yeah. it's a very polished version. But you have to go through that, really. I think the song, I think most songs have to go through a process of refining. Uh -huh to record them 
and then the like the live version with just solo acoustic guitar and vocal is a distillation of that distillation. So yeah. that's not what you would have got had I just written it. Yeah. It's okay. So the dynamics are sorted out, the structure's yeah. sorted out, and even the tune on top of it, you know, that that yeah. comes after the writing. So yeah. So the distillation of everything into that one thing is what makes okay. the cut down version so good. Did you Hopefully. Are you, I mean, obviously you and Chris are one of the finest songwriting duos in the history of music, but I I can't tell if you feel, I don't know, insecure about your own abilities as a lyricist, or if it was just never like, I got Chris Difford, what am I writing words for? You know, uh, you do what you're good at and I'll do what I'm good at. What was the thinking there? Well, the thinking when I, when I met Chris was, uh, wow, he writes amazing words. Uh, I definitely did not write amazing words you know I, my lyric writing was very uh, poor and basic and uh his tune writing wasn't poor but it was basic okay mine was you know that was where i excelled and so mm-hmm. for our partnership to come together like that it really it was a perfect fit yeah. and it carried on being a perfect fit for uh, for a long time i think um uh, but you know, so you know, when we split up in 1998, I really had to find my feet as a, as the lyricist that I'd never yeah. really felt any need to develop being. Uh-huh. And so, so say for instance, where I am now, I love writing lyrics now. Good. It's I do that. I, I've never stopped doing that, uh, and I've always said my biggest influence is Chris. Although we're different mm-hmm. in our mm-hmm. our approaches to. Uh, Chris can pluck details out of something and, and really make it tell. He's a, a little more florid in the way he would tell a story, and I suppose I am more uh, sometimes straightforward. But I also, you know, I enjoy writing about the politics of situations without mm. being political about it, and I think that's an important part and probably a bit of a difference to who I am to who Chris is and actually something I've brought to the table that Chris has picked up on. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's good to have that difference between us as, as well as all things in common. Yeah. Okay. I have to ask you about one of your strangest songs. What in the world is Hot Shaved Asian Teens? You know, I knew you were going to say that. And <laughs> as soon as you said that, yeah, um, 
people said at the time, do you really want to do that? Do you really? And I said, yes. They said, you might regret it. And they were right. But I, really? I regret it for this reason. I regret it for this reason that I was challenged by a friend to write a song with that title. Oh. And so I immediately passed it on to Steve Poltz, who wrote the lyric. Uh-huh. It has nothing to do with any reality. It just seemed so unlikely. And I thought it was funny. If I think about the reality behind that sort of thing, uh-huh. uh, I, I sort of wish I hadn't done it. And I should have uh-huh. known better being the age I was. But, uh-huh. but I didn't. If you take it in the spirit it's meant, it might be vaguely funny. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> that's the best I can offer, really. Okay. I um I never thought of it as necessarily being offensive or anything like that. Maybe in today's uh light it might be. It didn't occur to me. I just see it as an oddity. And I just thought, so <laughs> what is it's an exorcism of strangeness coming from Glenn Tilbrook, you know? What is he <laughs> what is going on with hot shaved Asian Asian teens? I don't get it. But uh, anyway, I was just curious. Okay. So I, maybe I, like a lot of Americans, I discovered Squeeze with the video to Hourglass. greatest videos I'd ever seen. I hadn't heard Tempted or anything like that to that point wow. yet. And um, it was so fun. And the song, every, you know, you wait patiently for it to come on MTV so you can decipher what that strange chorus, what every word in that is. And I remember when I finally got it down and I could sing along, it was so exciting. I was like 13, 14 years old. <laughs> um, I am curious if, did a record, why was that the moment when I assume a record label said, we're going to put some muscle behind finally breaking squeeze in the U.S. Why yes. that moment? Well, you may well ask that. And I asked that question myself as well. Uh, I remember our uh, the head of publicity at A&M, a very uh, legendary guy in the industry called Charlie Minor, told us mm. that we were going to have a hit with that song. Mm-hmm. before it came out and we'd never been told that before and I thought mm-hmm. well how can you know that mm-hmm. you knew because you're right they put some uh, muscle behind it I think they thought that it was maybe our time or mm-hmm. that you know they missed some things before that could have gone 
so uh, that was our that was our little uh, bit of um, our day in the sunshine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Who who came up with the concept for the video? Uh, that was uh, a guy called Adrian Edmondson. Oh, who, from the Young Ones. Uh, yes, really. He directed that. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you know that. Yeah, I mean, he, what a great job he did! What yes. a, an amazing job he did. Uh, I, I think there was uh, quite a lot of input from Jules as well. But uh, it, it, yeah, it certainly was. Uh, it's uh, I think one of the best things, best videos uh, we've done. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, now to ask you about another song. My I think my very favorite Squeeze song is Footprints. This is probably more of a shout out to Chris, but not a year goes by where every fall I think of the words, the summer's over, I can count the cost, footprints on the beaches are now footprints in the forest. I think about that line, I'm getting goosebumps just thinking, just saying it, uh-huh. to me. And my, I'm originally from Salt Lake City, Utah, and I believe the video to that song was filmed in Park City or something like that. What's yes, the, do you right. remember the, the creation of footprints? Tell me about it. Yeah, are you talking about the video or the song? Either one, the video, the song, whatever. Okay. I love it all. Well, the, the video is easier. Um, you're right. We're in Park City and uh, we were in the middle of a tour. And there's a certain sort of uh, magic and chemistry you get in a band when you're on tour that is different to coming together from your individual lives mm-hmm. in London mm-hmm. or something. So we've been in each other's pockets and there's a nice sort of madness about uh, the feel of that video. Plus, beautiful, all that snow, yeah. those people uh, in, in, involved in um, in the bar scenes and that, in the bowling alley, it was it was just, you know, done on the fly and it felt very fresh. Looks, yeah. It looks good still, I think. It does, I love it. Speaking of songwriting, so if you don't mind, I wanna go back to the beginning for a minute. The first album, <laughs> You know, it, I'm curious what was going through your mind at that time. You're being produced by John Cale, who is, for all intents and purposes, sort of a legend. I mean, if you're a Velvet Underground fan, you admire this guy greatly. He comes in, but he doesn't seem to understand what makes Squeeze special. And I actually interviewed Gilson on here a few years ago, and I asked him about this. My understanding is that either the label or John wanted to market you guys or call you the gay guys or something like that. 
And I asked, uh, I read that somewhere and I asked Gilson about it. He didn't know what I was talking about. Now that was John. John suggest that was uh, John's suggestion for what the album should be called. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I weird. Think that was no one's gay though, right? As far as it went, no one's gay in the band, or or are they? I don't even know. I don't think so. No, not not to my knowledge. <laughs> yeah, so I wondered what that was an odd concept. And the best song on there is "Take Me I'm Yours," but you guys did that. My understanding is he didn't have anything to do with it. John Cale, I've said this before, but I think he's a brilliant, he's an absolutely brilliant producer. He was full of ideas that were really great and creative. And a lot of those didn't really make it onto the record because mm. he would put us in, you know, like on an odd lineup of instruments and get us playing together. And he was after something that I, I feel that we couldn't really deliver. Mm. He he got some out of me. He got some of the strangest writing. Um, there's a song called "The Call," yeah. which literally is not great. dated a lot but musically it's uh it's quite odd and, and it's quite complex at the end and john was very encouraging very generous with his uh, time on that but squeeze were primarily 
a pop band and he he wasn't at a place where he really wanted to work with pop music I think I think he wanted something more rocky and heavier no. so we did an album for him and it uh, and it didn't really sound like us uh, it doesn't sound like us it sounds like a strange aberration of squeeze and yeah. so you know as you're right we did take me i'm yours and bang bang and then when we did the call for cats album that was sort of how i thought we would have sounded on our first record but sort yeah. of like our first record in a way when it's when you're doing that i i and i don't i'm not trying to vilify john kale here in any way but I, as no. a young band who gets to put out their first album and work with a guy like that are you disheartened does it does it take the wind out of your sails? Do you start to question your own ability as songwriters? Like, man, I thought we were doing something great and this album isn't what we had in mind because you bounce back so perfectly with Pool for Cats. That's what crystallizes Squeeze. You know, what What happened for us was that, you know, Take Me On Yours was a sort of hit in the UK and, and at some places in Europe. And so that sort of galvanised us to think mm. that we were doing something right. So... It didn't really feel like a disappointment, even though the album wasn't perhaps what we thought it, it could be. It was an album, and we had a major label, and they were sticking with us, so it all felt good. Okay. Okay, that's good. Because what a bounce back. I mean, you finally kind of find your footing after that, and then it's just, you know, goodness from then on, basically. Um, speaking of goodness, so... I'm a big fan of the Cozy Fan Tutti Fruity album. I, I love it. Um, and one of the reasons why is because I think it has some of your strongest songs. But I also, I, because I'm an 80s kid, I love the production, which sounds, I'm sure, right. overwhelming in some ways today. How, when you look back on that album, how do you view it? Do you view, are you happy with the final product? Or do you see good songs buried in production of the time? Well. I think I've made no secret of the fact that probably I I, I lean towards the latter view, not mm. not exclusively. I think, you know, Laurie did a uh, Laurie Latham who produced a record, uh, and let's bear in mind I've worked with Laurie quite a, quite a lot over the last ten years. I, I love Laurie and I love his work. Mm -hmm. At that time, he was riding high on a lot of success, and I think that, that he stamped his way of working on squeeze um at the time which is you know which is fair enough mm -hmm. we to my mind sounded better when when we played together and i wish mm -hmm. the record had been made i don't mm -hmm. wish it I, I think the record would have been better had we done it that way however mm -hmm. i'm not complaining it was it had some it had some great songs on it and some very odd versions of them <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I love yeah, we're it. playing a few we're playing a few tracks from that now, and uh, good. You know the songs the songs feel great, but uh, it's it's not my favorite squeeze record. Mm. It's uh, I really love it. We have Patreon supporters, and I always send it out to them who I'm interviewing, and if they want to contribute questions, they can. We had a couple people contribute some stuff, but one of them in particular was from Brian Morris asking about some of the songs on there, and. Um, Last Time Forever is just gorgeous, especially Jules's incredible piano solo in there, which thankfully doesn't get lost to the production or anything like that. 
Yeah. Can you, when you, I know, you know, obviously Chris is responsible for lyrics in most cases, but is that about a, a specific time or person or situation? What do you remember about it? Uh, what I remember about it is what Chris uh, said uh, about writing the lyric, that it was, it was one of those things that he read in a newspaper, uh, you know, a murder trial about an mm. airline pilot who had got you know, obsessed with the notion that his wife was being unfaithful. You know, today we would recognise that as controlling coercive behaviour, ending in killing the yeah. poor woman. But um, uh, that was the that was where he that was what he based on. And um, you know, the tune it was one of those songs that had been around for uh, ten years or so. Mm -hmm. We'd written it as a uh, with a different lyric same tune and we just uh as we have done periodically throughout our careers resurrected something from the past and gave it a bit of a different sheen so it was mainly uh, down to chris the credit for that mm. um it's so beautiful uh plus no place like home
No Place Like Home is another one of my favorite Squeeze songs. And your vocal on there, I'm curious, I can't, so I saw you on the last tour with X, which was, um, <laughs> so first of all, I remember when, when that was announced and I thought that is two of the oddest, that's the oddest pairing I can imagine, but it worked. X, and I've always been fine with X, never thought one way or the other. They blew me away. They were so good. And you guys were so great afterwards. I don't think you still play No Place Like Home, but if you did, could you hear, could you hit those soaring notes that you had to hit in that song? Yes, I, yes, I still can. And you're right. Um, it was, X were fantastic. Really, yes. really great. And uh, that was a wonderful pairing. I'd love to do that again. Yeah. Um, and it worked. Yeah. We, it sounded like we met somewhere halfway in a way that I hadn't expected at all. I thought it would be a great bill, but uh, more disparate than it actually ended up being. Yeah. It was fantastic. Um, now, speaking of great bills, so you guys are about to go back out on the Nomad Band tour. Some of these dates are with Hall & Oates, which is another pairing that makes perfect sense. Um, I, this tour, I believe yeah. kicked, we're talking on the 26th. I think it kicks off next week. Um, have you, do you have a history with Hollow Notes or anything like that? I imagine you guys get compared a lot. First of all, you know, they're song, they're songwriting together. Uh, uh, they've got an amazing mm -hmm. history and, uh, uh, of songs. And let's not forget that they also, it's not just about the history. It's about how. Currently, mm -hmm. they are fantastic. You know, mm -hmm. they're great as individuals and together. Yes. The, the musicality of what they do, it, you know, blows blows me away. And it feels like one of those very few tours where, um, I mean, my comparison would be the tour that we did with Elvis Costello in 1981. Mm -hmm. It feels that good to me. You know, we've only yeah. done a couple of shows of them so far because of the pandemic. But it shifted all around. But uh, it just feels like the audience get everything mm -hmm. and it feels like we're getting the same amount of attention as they are. It's plainly the headlining. Yeah. Plainly, we're having a great time. So it's win-win. Yeah. Though that's, uh, I can't, those are your two of my favorite acts in history. What an amazing double bill this is going to be. Um, so I got to ask, my... When you guys went off and did Different in Tilbrook, was the idea there, let's see if we can capture some of the Hall & Oates magic. If we call ourselves Different in Tilbrook and we focus on the fact that we're a duo, <laughs> um, we can, maybe some of that magic will rub off on us. I've read that before, but I don't know if that's true. <laughs> if it's true, it's it's, uh, it's it's news to me. No. Oh, okay. I think, um, <laughs> Uh, not in a rude way, um, uh -huh. but uh, uh, different Tilbrook, uh, you know, we called ourselves that out of loyalty to the people who had been in Squeeze, you know. Gilson was having a hard time uh, at, that, at that point. Uh, that impacted on us, to be, to be fair, because of his drinking was just way out of control. Mm. And it became not fun to be in Squeeze. And... You know, if we'd been uh, harder-headed, we would have formed a new squeeze, I think, and probably had twice the amount of success. But we didn't do that. And I respect our reasons for not doing that out of loyalty to 
to Gilson primarily. And um, so, you know, it was an experiment. And it was also a chance for us to, you're right, the, the, the Hall of Notes connection I would make with that record is that um, I was certainly getting influenced musically by more black music. And that comes across, I think, on, on that record, uh, Love's Crashy Waves. You know, it's... A, yes. It's, it's the Philly sound as imagined mm -hmm. in London. That's you know I, I love those sort of lush arrangements and people mm -hmm. not being shy of using a few chords, mm -hmm. but sort of jazz influence, not jazz, but mm -hmm. in that ballpark. So you know um, with the but with the thudding, heavy eighties um, snare. <laughs> yeah, Tony Visconti produced that album, didn't he? You know I'm ashamed to say yes, he did. He and he did a brilliant job. At some point, uh, maybe actually it's time for the anniversary of that record to come around because uh, A&M turned down his mix of the record. Uh, and so we worked on another version with Eric Thorngren. Now, Eric did a great job on that. But I have to say, I think that A&M turned his version, turned Tony Visconti's version down because... It was too uh, sort of traditional and not modern enough. Really? Um, yeah. And uh, uh, Tony Visconti said in his book it was the only record he ever had turned down by Abel, which was uh, really sad. So uh, we ought yeah. to get that version out because it's a, it's a great and it's quite oh, a different kidding. take on them. Yeah. No kidding. He, he was great to work with. Uh, you know, I've got no end of praise for what uh, Tony Visconti did for us. He was really uh, empathetic working with us. He fostered a great feeling between all the musicians in the studio. He's, and he got songs as well, you know. Yeah. That's a main thing. Yeah. Huh. E.T. Yeah. Thorngren's no slouch either. He's great. But, yeah, I just thought if you have Tony Visconti on an album, why are you not, you know, playing that up? He's a legend, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, uh, uh, AM Universal, whatever they're called these days, uh, have been sold a couple of times. And I know they've lost a lot of tapes. Mm -hmm. But I have the original tapes of really? uh, yeah, of the uh, of the original albums. So I'm gonna to talk okay. to them about that because uh, they should see they should come out and they're great. Yeah, they should. 
Um, okay, I touched on this earlier. You, Glenn, you're kind of a guitar shredder at your core. I am blown away whenever I see you playing guitar, how amazing you are. But you don't ever play that up. You you could put out some kind of like Joe Satriani, Steve Vai, you know, kind of album. Do you ever, when do you let that part of yourself shine? Uh, probably live, you know. I don't think, firstly, I don't think I'm uh, I'm in that category. I don't, that's not how I see myself. I'm not that uh-huh. great a guitarist. I have my moments when I can do stuff. Most of the solos I do that are any good are, are worked out. I'm not a spontaneous player. I don't have really? that. Yeah, I, I don't really have the chops to do that. And if I'm being spontaneous, it's in a blues idiom. It's very nice, everything you've said about my playing, and I'm very grateful. But, uh, uh, you know, um, I'm primarily a writer, then I'm a singer, then I'm a You guitarist. are. You are. But, man, you, you can play the guitar, and I don't know that you get enough credit for it, and I don't think you play it up very often. Okay, I have a super nerdy question for you, and maybe I should know the answer to this, but I don't. Okay. After you guys kind of went away for a while, I remember a few years ago, you performed on Ellen. And she held up a live album that was coming out. And I remember the cover looked like one of those old psychedelic posters from the 60s at the Fillmore kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I never saw that album. Is that out? Did it actually come out? And you were sporting a really weird mustache at that time. yeah, live at the Fillmore. Um, was that it? it? Come okay. out. Yeah, uh, but it got a limited release. You know, we're looking at putting that out again. Actually, okay, it's a good record, and uh, Bob Beer Mountain gave it a lovely, pristine, wonderful Ooh. mix, as he always does. So nice. it's a posh record as well. Nice. Okay. Yeah, I never saw. I never saw it like in the shops, or you know, it looked yeah. kind of disappeared. Okay. Now speaking of talk show appearances. I remember uh, so well when you guys went on David Letterman and you performed If It's Love from Frank. And that was a song that I liked. Um, But when I saw you guys perform, because you went out of your way to get the whole crowd going on the, is it love, is is it love, is it love part. I remember it so well. I'd like to ask you all in the audience to exchange body fluids if you so desire. <laughs> if not, just enjoy yourselves and sing along with us at the count of three. And it completely, I I just, I fell in love with that song. I'm curious what the, uh, if 
you know, obviously, as we talked earlier, the label goes big on putting muscle behind Babylon and on. We're going to make this thing a hit. Did that continue and carry over into Frank or did they kind of go back to treating Squeeze as alternative artists? No, I think it was the latter. And uh, Frank was a record, you know, um, uh, nothing happened with Frank. And, and then uh, we were dropped. Uh, A&M was sold at that point. So it was a, it was an odd time uh, for Squeeze. But, you know, that's, uh, that's the way it was. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was that really that was that okay. that was that was it for that record yeah so how do you feel I mean are you you had been an established successful band in the UK and Europe up to that point Babylon and on may have been I don't know if you look back in or at the time and you're thinking we finally broke America we're going to be even bigger or if you look at it with some skepticism like I've been in this for a while I know these things come and go and then when Frank comes and goes, are you disappointed? How do you handle that kind of, I don't know, not re- that dip, you know, I guess. Um, with Frank, you know, there's some, there some good moments on it. Um, but as I say, we were dropped and then we signed to uh, Reprise and we did, we did um, play. I'm still immensely proud of that record. Should be. Uh, You know, for whatever reason, they dropped us pretty much as soon as it came out. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the reasons I think was that there wasn't a single on it. Mm -hmm. And the other reason was that times were changing and we weren't really, you know, the bell of the ball anymore. So that's fair enough too. Some fantastic place. We get another great record. The moon has come up and the sun 
to so it just wasn't our time everything we did whether it was good or bad it just didn't work so we went on that trajectory of of going up and and then you know in terms of commercial success we were um no one's priority and so you know eventually after the last record that we did which was called ridiculous we've been playing along with all the a and r ideas and whenever you get signed you know someone always knows how you know to fix the broke that you they think you are uh, and we went along with all that and at the end of that i thought you know what i don't really want to do this this way anymore I'd rather be independent. I'd rather be, I'd rather feel like I'm not jumping through 18 hoops to get a record made that no one loves. You know, it's not just the guy whose idea it was. It's uh, us we're left with, you know, no one's particular version of of our song. So uh, uh, that was, a, that was a, a liberating moment to let go of that for me mm-hmm. was actually felt like a relief so yeah. uh, of course all the time you're hoping for success but but it it wasn't to be at that time yeah which just leads to a longer thing about so then chris thought you know what i'm done and left uh so it was time to reconsider and out of those out of those ashes came me being solo came me you know, as you say, you know, playing playing the bar in Sacramento, sixteen people, and really re reevaluating what it is that I do and and why I'm doing it. You know, yeah. Because I can honestly say now, for a position of uh, you know, we're back you know, earning money and everything's really good for. Yeah, I can yeah. say that those times were so important to me because it taught me the value of what I do. And how I love it, mm-hmm. and how it's not just about making money; it's enjoyment, and it's you know being lucky enough to entertain, if even if it's six people, and it was yeah. six people. Sometimes, yeah. you know, yeah, that's okay. I'm okay with that. I'm okay yeah. with that. And I mean, uh, am I okay with that? I'll enjoy it, and I'll make yeah. it good, and I won't let people down. Yeah, in that way. And with that head on, actually, touring became much more fun than it had been with Squeaks. And I thought, this is what's been missing, is the, yeah. the joy, you know. Squeeze ended up like going to work. and That's not how it should be. Yeah, yeah. Um, I can only say that it, you being committed to your craft in the way that you just explained is what gave me one of the most satisfying concert experiences of my life, which was seeing you in the Sacramento bar, you know, two feet away. And uh, Thank you for that. it was, um, I was so grateful that you, it, it was clear that you made it a point to play and perform with your whole heart and give us the best show you could. And I was, I'm so thankful for that because it changed everything for me. It was a huge one. Um, one of the other Patreon questions that came in is from one of our listeners, Ian Sharp, and he piggybacking on what you were just saying, he was asking about these ups and downs that Squeeze have had to endure. And he was curious if it, you sort of touched on this just now. I'm guessing that he asked specifically if it ever feels like a grind 
But my guess is that these days, maybe in your case, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, it mm-hmm. might feel more like a victory lap. Like we're in a real, we're in a good place now. We have a good band. We can play these shows with X and H and O. And a lot of people want to come. We're making decent money. They're, the hard times all got us here. Or are you still like, man, those, it, it's just difficult sometimes. Uh, well, I don't, a victory lap I would associate with you getting towards the end of it. And I don't really mm. feel like, uh, for me, I can honestly say I don't think that the end will be when I die. That's yeah. it. Yeah. I know that about me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know about Squeeze. I can't speak for Chris or anyone else, but I, I'll keep going for as long as I can because not have any sense of duty. It's what I want to do. Uh, and I love it. I love it. And I still, I still want to do that. So, so well, there's always ups and downs as I know now. And, and I feel tremendously lucky to have, not been one of those people actually who experience success and then experience not being successful and who take that as a cue to and um now i know very many talented people who you know maybe felt like embarrassed there's a whole thing about where you feel your standing is in the world and, and you know, if you're used to people carrying your cases into the hotel and something, you're lugging that, not only that, but your own gear in. Many people can feel upset at that. And there were times when it was a little distressing, um, but a few times, more times than I felt, this is where I am. Let's just get on with it and and see where that see where that leads. You know, I mean the other strand of this is is that. You know, I've wanted to, I've always invested in myself. You know, I've been independent now. I've had a studio for 30 years. And that's really important to me because making records, whether they sell or not, is mm-hmm. also something I will carry on doing. That's just, mm-hmm. I want to do that. I, I love that. I love the exploration of it. And I love the, you know, whatever happens next yeah. of it. It's fun to me. It's fun. Good. It's it's work and it's fun. So good. Yeah, it's um, not a victory lap. That's what I'm saying. Okay, good. Well, I'm glad you're still committed to being around for a while because uh, I and I got again piggybacking on that. I love the last two Squeeze albums, um, Cradle the Grave and the Knowledge, and I uh, they sound like evolutionary versions of Squeeze. They sound like more sophisticated, almost more creative versions of something. And specifically, I want to ask you about the song Rough Ride. i 
It's got opera. It's got trumpet. It's got a children's choir. And yeah. you being the guy who's responsible for the music, does Chris, do you just think, you know what the song really needs is both opera and a children's choir. And does Chris ever say to you, what are you doing? That is so weird. Or And you're like, no, trust me, trust me. I can hear it in my head. It's going to be fantastic. Um, well, to be, um, you know, it's a tribute to Chris that uh, on things like that, he um, let me get on with that. You know, <laughs> it, uh, plainly I had uh, an idea of how it could be. And, you know, that was an example of, what I was saying earlier about some of the things being, I guess, more political in in content, not actually political in, in uh, you know, as far as leaning any way towards a party or anything. But uh, so I wrote the, the, the lyric about actually the position of, you know, my kids not being able to afford to live where they grew up. Mm. And that's a weird that's a weird concept to me that that house value should be something that is great for people of my generation if they go up. But the bigger picture is it's just freezing our kids out unless you pass wealth down to them. In other words, you have to have money. Yes, everyone has to have money, but mm. it's uh, it seems uh, it seems unfair to me. There's not enough anyhow. So that's what the gestation of that song is so I wanted it to be operatic in its outlook musically mm-hmm. and and the children's choir featured uh, my youngest boy yeah, mm-hmm. I is now not quite as no voice like that but mm-hmm. um, <laughs> uh, I, and you know it's just something that I felt really uh, good about say just putting a, a marker down and saying this, that's how I feel and Chris tied it up with a wonderful chorus the chorus lyric really sums up the whole song. That was all Chris. So that's the great thing about working together. Totally. Um, Speaking of another more recent song that's so unique is, um, well, first of all, the whole Happy Ending album is, uh, just sounds also kind of hyper-creative. Why are like half the songs guys' names? And then tell me about Mud Island.
because it's heavily Indian influenced, which is not something you think you go, you are going to hear on a Glenn Tilbrook song, and yet you do. Tell me about these. Um, well, uh, that Happy Ending was the first record I ever made where I gave myself a set of uh, parameters. And normally I, I don't do that. And, it, and to, I found that to admit myself was actually really great. So I think there are no electric guitars on there. It's only acoustic guitars. So it's just percussion and iPads. And that was oh. it. Okay. So uh, that was a really great set of uh, parameters and loops. So in fact, so, so for Mud Island, uh, I used a set of um, tabla loop, and I have a sitar, mm-hmm. and just uh, wanted to convey, we, we started working on the project uh, with Danny Baker that became Cradle to Grave, mm-hmm. but I got in and wrote that song before, and it would never have fit in because uh, the thing that Danny wanted was to sound more of that time. Mm. Whereas I, I saw it as an opportunity to write about that time, but not sound like that time, um, which is what I did with Mud Island. Uh, gee, I'm very proud of uh, Happy Ending. Actually, it's it still stands up as a as a record to me. Like uh, great album. Yeah, oh, thank you. So, I mean, it's it's different, but it's uh, it just feels like this really interesting creative burst. Um, Okay, I, we try to cover sensitively sort of the business side of things on here. We've talked about the ups and downs of the band, but I am I am curious. Could and if this is insensitive, please tell me. I, could you live off tempted money forever? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, really, because that's no. just, I feel like it just keeps getting more and more seen as a classic, ever present. Yeah, well, I I wish that um, translated into uh, Mm. money, but it um, uh, sadly it um, it doesn't. I mean, we get stuff from it. I'm not uh, I'm I'm not moaning, but it's not (laughs) it's nothing like that. Not enough to live off. Okay, Um, one more nerdy question about that song. At the very beginning, you can faintly hear the first line. Yeah. Error that just got left there, or what? Uh, it was, uh, yeah, it, it got left there because it sounded 
first pool practicing before he started singing. Really? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I wondered what the story, I've always wondered what the story of that was because it's such a unique little twist. Um, yeah. How did you, I should know this and I can't remember off the top of my head. How did, because Paul, when I think, when I think most of us, when we think of Paul now, we think of one of the greatest soul singers in UK history and a mm -hmm. fantastic solo artist in his own right. But he wasn't necessarily that when he sang with you. He had he wasn't, you know, capital P Paul just yet. So how did he even get, you know, introduced to the mix? Was that an Elvis Costello thing? Uh, it was, uh, well, through, you know, hanging with Elvis and um, Nick Love and Jack Riviera, you know, uh, Paul was in that world. Um, mm. uh, um, I think, in fact, he went on to play with Nick Love after us. Mm -hmm. Um it just seemed like an ideal fit when uh, Jules left, Paul was around. So he came in and he gave us something totally different to Jules, mm. which is, you know, as I've said, one of the great strengths of this band is that we could absorb different people mm -hmm. and it can, you know, squeeze can change to accommodate them. Yeah. Um, I'm excited. I'm talking to him in a couple of weeks and uh, he's, I love him too. Speaking of Paul, he comes back around for the Sun Fantastic Place album. She gave to me a tenderness, her friendship and her love. I see her face from time to time, there in the sky above. We grew up learning as we went, what a voyage our lives could be. It took us through a wilderness, into the calmest sea. A smile could lift me from the pain I often found within She said some things I won't forget She made a few bells ring So simple her humility Her beauty found in grace Today she lives another life In some fantastic place she showed me how to raise a smile out of a bed of bloom. And in her garden sanctuary, a life began to bloom. She visualized the world ahead and planned how it would be. She left behind the strongest love. That song chokes me up and it reminds me of my mom. And I have this plan in the back of my head that when my mom when my mom passes away, I want to play that song at her funeral. Hopefully I'm understanding it all correctly. Do you happen to know what inspired that song? Because it's gorgeous. Uh, it's a song about a really old friend of ours uh, called Maxine who uh, who succumbed to leukemia, you know, very uh, comparatively young age in her 30s. And uh, so Chris wrote that lyric and gave it to me without saying anything. I knew it was about Maxine. And mm -hmm. that was one of those lovely times that doesn't happen often where I sat down and played the song without oh. stopping. And that's how it oh. was. So, Beautiful. Uh, yeah, it, it, it is a beautiful song. One, uh, 
one that Chris and I are very proud of. Good. I um, I just have it tucked away to play for my mom when the moment's right because uh, it says it all. I think it's so beautiful. Um, okay, one of our other listeners, Courtney Cronin Dole. She and I are friends because we're equally squeeze fan, huge squeeze fans, and she sent over some questions. One thing she wanted to know is uh, working with Chris Braid. How did you two come together, and what does he? What what's the magic there? The chemistry. Okay, Chris Braid um, is a brilliant songwriter, and someone gave me a cassette of his when like when he was sixteen. I think he'd written a bunch of songs. Plainly, he's gifted. Then, so I got in contact with him, went up and did some writing with him. He was still living with his parents. I was there in the bedroom with him. Um, it's sort of been like 1990, maybe 89 or 90 or something. And uh, it was just a massive, massive talent. And um, as he's proved to go on and have a fantastically successful career. St- you know, I'm still really good friends um, with Chris. And, uh, and we work together still every mm. so often, every mm. now and then. That's great. Another question she had for you is she actually really likes the Domino album, but she heard you don't like it. Is that true? Uh, no, that's not uh, that's not true, actually. I, I, I like Domino. I think it's uh, most, a mostly good record. Yeah. It's yeah. ridiculous yeah. that you're not super keen on. By then, you'd sort of... Things were... Ridiculous. I'm, I, I'm, not, I'm not so keen on ridiculous. It feels more sort of... Bitty again. It has its moments. Yeah, it's not. It's not play. It's not some fantastic place. Yeah. When you okay, so I'm just going to ask, what do you think would be the quintessential perfect squeeze album? Does it exist? Of all the ones we know, which one are you like? That's the one that I think captured it the best. Uh, you know. I think the knowledge for this squeeze, mm-hmm. I think maybe play or some fantastic place for mid squeeze and and uh, either argy-bargy or side story for early squeeze. Yeah, I'd probably agree with that. I'd probably agree with that. Um, another question that she passed along, and I, I was curious about this too. As I mentioned, when I saw you in Sacramento, you were taking requests and people are throwing out deep cuts. And you are you keeping just like, hundreds of songs in your brain all the time that you're ready to play whenever in one of these things? How do you do that? Uh, well, I think probably with more difficulty now than I could then. Ah, I see. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. I have to be a bit more prepared now. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Um, okay. So we're coming up on the hour. I want to, I in case you can't tell, I have my notes in front of me and then on another screen over here i want to make sure i've covered everything that i had for you oh i remember um one of the first time i finally got to see squeeze in concert it was in the more latter era and you guys came through denver where i live and um it was i believe to kind of help promote spot the difference my understanding in spot of spot the difference and a lot of bands have done this is you re-record your hits as close as you can to the originals so that whenever something gets placed in a commercial or a movie or whatever, if they take the newer versions, you own 100% of the licensing of that. Is that how that works? 
Well, in theory, that's how it works. Uh, We're still trying. We haven't had any bites on it yet. <laughs> really? They still go back to the old tempted and the old hourglass. You know, when people find that stuff, you know, actually, the people who are pushing spot the difference now, if you go to Spotify or any of that stuff, you'll find that sometimes if you search for some of the old songs that the Spotify, the uh, spot difference version will come up. And say, for instance, you know, I'd like people to go to the version of uh, Black Coffee in Bed on Spot the Difference. It is the superior version. Really? You think uh, so? Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, because, uh, selfishly, because I really sing it properly. Now, I know if people like the record, they'll say, mm, you, uh. you did a good job of it. And that's fair enough. If you like it, I'm not knocking it all. I can sing the song now, and I couldn't properly. Uh-huh. So Spot the Difference version is... I think it's the best version because it sounds like the old one. Then there's Glenn who can actually sing it. Well done, Glenn. Okay. Okay. (laughs) We're going to play a little snippet of it right here to give people an idea of what you're talking about. I just realized I didn't get an answer to that other question that I asked about. Why are half the songs on um, Happy Ending named after guys? Oh, uh, well, because uh, I was going to do a whole album where – all the songs were names and then I ran out of names to write about, you know, and then got distracted by some other things. So half of them were a very poor answer to that interesting question. I was was just curious. You've talked about setting yourself some parameters or rules. Like I'm going to, you know, I'm going to write an album with no electric guitars or whatever. So I wondered if that was a similar thing. Well, it, it was a similar thing, but I didn't stick to it. You know, I, I didn't stick to it when I got some other things that I wanted to write, say, like Mud Island or, or um, Everybody Sometimes. You know, they couldn't mm-hmm. be named songs. And, you know, there's some of my favourite lyrics on the record. So they sort of took precedent over the idea of names. Okay, okay. Um, all right, last two questions. Number one, when you look back over this career of yours that has been 
I mean, from an outsider's perspective, it's been wonderful. Being a squeeze fan is so, it's lovely. It's so enjoyable because you're so great at what you do. What is one of your favorite memories when you look back? Is it the early, the rough early days, scrapping, trying to make it happen? Is it nailing a song that you, you know, perfectly, even a song no one knows? What is it? Uh, you know, right now, uh, I have to say, uh, one of the last gigs we did before lockdown and all that stuff was with Hall and Oates at Madison Square Gardens, oh. on the 28th of February last year. Oh. And we had an absolutely glorious gig. One of my favourite gigs ever, actually. The place went mad. And, you know, after everything I've told you about being up and down, and, mm -hmm. and uh, I can find joy in all of those situations but to see a place that size going bananas for us it was a real it was a real moment and that's there for me was that your first time playing madison square garden no we played it um several times before under our own steam i mean we played it uh, here's how important it is i think the 18th of june 1982 was when we first played it and it was it was fantastic you know, I'd have that as one of my uh, one, as one of my uh, favorite memories too. But that's a long time ago. This one is yeah. more recent and and actually fresh and wonderful. Sure, and and hard earned. You yeah. um, on this new tour, you're coming through Salt Lake City, where I'm from originally, as I mentioned. So uh, I'm going to try and head over there to catch that show with my friends and family because we're we're all big. We love Squeeze, uh, Glenn. I couldn't love you more. You're one of the greatest there's ever been, and I'm not exaggerating. One of the that's greatest really, that's ever lived. John, thank you. And thank, uh, you. thank you for talking with me. It means the world. I think you're amazing. Thank you, John. I've really enjoyed it. Good. You me have too. a good day. Thanks. Thank you. You too, Glenn. Have a good one. Bye-bye. All right. There you have it. The man himself, Glenn Tilbrook. One of the best there's ever been. I want to close it out with a song he mentioned a few minutes ago, Everybody Sometime. This is another good solo song. I, It just felt like we've heard, I don't know if we've heard, but you know the hits. Let's talk about some of the deeper tracks, you know? And go see Squeeze live right now if you can. They are on tour right now. I am going to Salt Lake City to see them with my brother Steve, who just had a baby today. Well, his wife did anyway. Uh, next week. So um, and go get vaxxed so you can go to shows so people like Squeeze can entertain us and make our lives better. Just do it. It's, it's as simple as that, okay? Delta's wreaking havoc. Hopefully these shows don't start getting canceled all over again. Go get vaxxed and go do it while you can. Next week, we're hearing from another one of the great British songwriters uh, ever. And um, they're to American audiences... He's probably best known for being the frontman of a of a fantastic one-hit wonder from the 80s. But he's been solo for a long time, still putting out great solo material and put out a fantastic new album this year. So we're going to talk about that. That's who's coming up next week. Not a, you know, not too far away, far removed from Glenn and Squeeze. Although they don't sound alike, but they're both British, you know, and they both are hyper-talented uh, songwriters. Huge thanks, as always, to Jan the Man Makiewicz, my right-hand man. Thank you, buddy, for everything you do. 
Folks, you can find us on Facebook. You can like our page. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. And uh, we will be back next week with another fantastic episode. Thanks, everybody. We love you. Figures.